Welcome to Fundamentally Human, a podcast about mental health topics unpacked in an easy-to-understand way. My name is Shervin, and I'm your host. Let's get started. As some of you may know, my background is in biology. That's what I studied in my undergraduate degree, and it's definitely been helpful for me to incorporate some of my knowledge in the sciences with therapy. An approach that many therapists take is the biopsychosocial approach, and that refers to how someone's biological, psychological, and social factors have contributed to who they are as a person. So for example, if you see someone who's having a difficult time, or maybe a better example is myself. I have driving anxiety, and you might look at what maybe some of the biological components are, uh, what some of my social components are, and psychological. So it's not just what I'm thinking, it's maybe how I interact with others, or maybe is it genetics, or how's my body responding to it. We're looking at so many different facets of who we are as a whole individual, rather than just what we're thinking and feeling. And for today, to better understand the biological aspect, I've enlisted the help of Dr. Jenny King to explain to us how trauma impacts our brain and nervous systems. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thank you for having me. And can you share a bit about yourself with the listeners, please? Sure. So my name is Dr. Jenny King. I am the co-director of the Center on Trauma and Adversity at the Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences at Case Western Reserve University, which is totally a mouthful. (laughs) That is our social work school. So I'm also an assistant professor there. Um, Honestly, you know, I I, started my career as a practitioner. I worked with kids and families um, living in high crime, high violence communities. And Truly, I feel like what I'm doing now in my position at the Trauma Center and at Case Western is really trying to create the opportunities for training that I really needed (laughs) as a baby social worker. Um, So I have, uh, along with my co-director, Dr. Megan Holmes, we have created um, a graduate certificate in trauma-informed practice. And I have established and I now direct our training program in the neurosequential model of therapeutics, which we partnered with Dr. Bruce Perry and the Neurosequential Network so that we could get trained and have a really thorough understanding of the impact of trauma on the brain and the impact of healing on the brain, and then train our students in that model too. So that's, that's a really exciting piece of my work now. Um, I also do a lot of other things on the side. I do trainings. I do consultation. um, I have some resources that I have created just to help folks have a better sense of how they can support their own nervous systems, how they can soothe the stress response in ways that are really fast and easy and run sort of counter to how we typically think about, you know, self-care, so to speak. I love that. And you have so much background in trauma, in the way we interact with others, not just through our the way we act, but just how our experiences have shaped who we are. And you mentioned Dr. Bruce Perry, who wrote a book called What Happened to You with Oprah, which is one of my favorite books. So for anyone who is learning, wanting to learn more about trauma and wanting to get their first 
dip their toes into it, What Happened to You is a great book for that. I totally agree. It's it's probably the first one that I recommend when people want to dive a little bit deeper into understanding this stuff. Yeah. And uh, we mentioned trauma a few times here. I'm hoping we can take a step back and now explain what is trauma and what does it look like through the biopsychosocial lens? Yes. Thank you for asking that question. Um, because it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and I think one reason that that's extra confusing is because we often use the word trauma to describe a thing that happened and a reaction or the effects of that thing happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We use it inter- interchangeably, which um, is super confusing. So there are lots of different ways to define trauma. I think first and foremost, what I want to say is that the person who has the experience is the one who determines whether or not they would deem that thing traumatic. That's really important. I like to lean toward more sort of adaptable, flexible definitions. So one that I um, usually teach and train comes from SAMHSA. Um, They describe trauma in terms of these three E's, as they call them. Um, So an event, a series of events, or a set of circumstances that is experienced as overwhelming or or threatening um, and has both short and long-term effects, which, um, you know, a lot of things can fall under that definition. And again, it speaks to the fact that it really comes down to the individual who's had the experience. Another definition that I'll also share comes from some of the folks in the somatics world. So that's more of sort of the the body-based modalities of treating trauma. Um, And they describe it as anything that is too fast, too soon, or too much to be integrated. And so that's, you know, even more wide open (laughs) and even more flexible, but again, speaks to the fact that these experiences or circumstances or events um, can be incredibly overwhelming to the nervous system. They can be incredibly disruptive to our lives. You know, thinking about biopsychosocial, everything from um, impacting our physical health, our mental health, our relationships, our ability to function in different communities and different spaces, it, it can really take a, a comprehensive toll. Definitely. And when I think about trauma too, I think back to when I did my practicum to be a counselor. And when we were doing the intake, one of the questions was about trauma. And my supervisor at the time, he had brought up that, you know, it, it goes beyond just the initial event of what might have happened. And he brought up bullying as an example of trauma because that's mm-hmm. something, you know, it, bullying can look like a, many different ways. It could look like one event that was particularly awful, or maybe it's something that happened to someone over a span of years or months or while they were younger in school. And that is traumatic in itself because it's something that someone had experienced and has something happened to them and it's something they were living with and dealing with even though maybe two years later they were at home they weren't in school being bullied but they were still dealing with the aftermath of what happened during those years of being bullied and yeah absolutely 
a gray area, but there's just so much that's happening that we don't know. And I think that's why using that biopsychosocial approach or that lens is so helpful in understanding it more. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think, you know, obviously the the impacts of trauma are going to be different depending on a whole, you know, host of factors. But I think one that a lot of folks can wrap their heads around is the the potential impact of something, a traumatic event that has a really clear beginning and ending, like a car accident might be an example of this, is going to have a different impact than, say, trauma that is is ongoing, repeated, prolonged, uh, that happens in the context of an attachment relationship. You know, the bullying, I think, is sort of an example, a gray area example, but also one where the there's not sort of a clear ending, beginning and ending to the thing that's happening. And so it's, yeah, it's it's confusing. And I think we really like to be able to fit things into boxes. And it's just not, it's just not that simple. I like what you said at the end about where you try to fit things into boxes and it's just not how it works. Mm-mm. Even if someone had the same experience, maybe they were both in a car in the same accident, what happened to them and how they dealt with it after could look so differently too. Maybe one person had a much more supportive environment or their injuries weren't as severe compared to another person, or maybe someone else experienced it in a way where they're just scarred from being in a car, whereas the other person is just can't be in the back seat compared to the front seat. There's just so many different explanations when it comes to trauma. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is also how our brains have adjusted to it. And yes. a word that comes up a lot is neuroplasticity. And we talk about that in chronic pain. But how does that look like for trauma? Maybe we should explain what neuroplasticity is first. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of to take a a really sort of um, oversimplified way of thinking about it, neuroplasticity is basically the principle that um, the brain can and does change all the time. So, and we used to be wrong about that. We used to think that there was sort of the brain development sort of static, that at some point it just stopped, that at some point in, in adulthood, it just stopped. And the reality is that the brain can and does change and also grow and develop um, at any time and does so as a function of um, sort of repetitive stimulation in the context of, of our relationships. So that's a really powerful, um, it's a really powerful concept, I think, because a lot of the time when you start thinking about the way that trauma literally can change the way that your brain develops, that can feel really like doomsday. You know what I mean? <laughs> but mm-hmm. the idea of neuroplasticity being that just like trauma can change the brain, healing can change the brain too. And that I think is a really a really powerful thing for, for us all to hang on to. There is research that shows the way we think about something or the way we approach something can really impact how our bodies feel or react to something. And that happens a lot with chronic pain. So it might sound like, oh, if you don't think it's that bad, it's actually not that bad. And I know that sounds really cliche, but it's true, actually. Uh, Research shows that the way we think, if we think 
pain is worse, it will be worse. And that placebo effect does come into play into these situations. Mm -hmm. Of course, just because you change the way you think, it doesn't take away your physical pain, but it can really impact how your body and your brain decides to intercept the, you know, to make it as simple as I can to intercept those pain waves or Mm -hmm. those pain receptors. And for anyone who wants to learn more about that, there's a TED Talk on the mysterious science of pain where they talk about how someone thought a nail had pierced their boot into their foot and they were crying in pain. But when the doctors took off the boot, they realized that the nail didn't even pierce the skin, didn't even touch the foot. So how we decide to Mm. tell ourselves about pain, how we decide to tell ourselves about trauma can really impact how we're actually feeling it. Sure. And so we can think of that as um, what we call like a top-down approach, right? Because what we're doing there, if we think about the structure of the brain, um, you know, the brain develops from the bottom up and it, it becomes more complex sort of, again, this is all oversimplified. I'm not a neuroscientist, but it becomes more, more complex sort of the higher that you go. And so our most sophisticated parts of the brain kind of fold over the top in the, the cortex or the thinking brain, a lot of people will say. And so one way of addressing um, the stress response in the body, which certainly is triggered by pain, is to, to appeal to that cortex first. So to use self-talk and to, to challenge distortions and all of those sort of things. Um, and sort of the, the other route would be taking the reverse and engaging in what we call bottom-up approaches. So instead of appealing to the top in hopes that you can sort of, you know, talk yourself into a different way of feeling, um, engaging the more reactive parts of the brain, the more primitive parts of the brain, which live lower in the bottom in the brainstem and and the limbic area um, and sort of work your way up that way. So ideally, you know, folks are able to um, have experiences of both top down and bottom up in my, in my clinical practice experience. I didn't know much about bottom up approaches and I didn't learn about them in graduate school a lot of what we learned was essentially talk therapy, which is certainly effective for a lot of people, but for a lot of people, it's not. And instead taking more of a, of a somatic or, or sort of body-based approach can just open up more possibilities for people. So again, yeah, it all comes back to, it's really, it's complex and it really depends on the individual. And because of that, it really depends on what you might be looking for. For some people, doing somatic therapy and what that means is paying attention to your body, doing breathing, meditation, things like that can be very healing because it connects them to their body, their mind-body connection. Whereas other people, for example, I'm not very... Meditation, I was going to say I'm not very good at meditation, but then you can't be good or bad at meditation. But I have a hard time sitting for more than five or 10 minutes, kind of just sitting and breathing and listening to Mm. myself. Mm -hmm. Whereas I find more relief through something like going for a walk. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I would, I would say, and I agree with you, first of all, I don't, stillness and breath work does not work well for me. Deep breathing is actually really activating for me. Um, Having to like hold my breath or lengthen my breath. Um, it, it's kind of, it triggers a stress response. 
I think one of the reasons that more of the movement-based somatic practices can folks can find them powerful is because they are offering that pattern, rhythmic, repetitive stimulation that can kind of turn off that stress response by by directly targeting the brainstem. So just like you, I I need to walk or I need to shake or I need to bounce or I need to dance. I need to do something to sort of um, sometimes it's like discharge. I think folks think of it that way. There's the feeling of stress or tension in the body and it can feel good to literally kind of move that out. But what's also happening there neurobiologically is that you're offering stimulation to the part of the brain that can be soothed through that pattern repetitive stuff. So it's, you know, all of these practices are are incredibly powerful. And I hope that folks are able to experiment a little bit because it, 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 in my opinion and in my experience and in the folks I've worked with, it takes a little while to find out what's going to work for you and what doesn't. And it's, it can be really frustrating to learn a practice like meditation and try it and hate it and then feel like, okay, well, you know, what am I going to do now? It's like, it, it does take a little bit of trial and error and exploration. And on the same note, some things that work for you today might not work for you tomorrow Yes, and vice versa. There are times I've noticed myself looking up a meditation or guided meditation on YouTube and feeling like, oh, it could be helpful just to have something calming and soothing so that I could follow along just to help reset my body. And then there are days where I'm like, okay, I've been sitting for a long time and I'm not feeling so good. Maybe I need a nap or maybe I need to go out for a walk. And it's just listening to what your body needs at that time. And that's not an easy thing, right? I think I was just talking about this with somebody the other day that I think we are sort of of like trained very early on to disconnect from our bodies, right? Even something Mm -hmm. as simple, like you think of a traditional school setting and how little space there is to listen to your body and offer it what it needs, right? Like you got to go to the bathroom at a certain time. You have to eat at a certain time. You have to drink water at a certain time. It's there that is reinforced kind of all over the place. And so I think collectively, yeah, there's this this sort of disconnect that many of us are trying to remedy. And so if you're not in a practice of tuning in to your body, that too can feel really overwhelming. A friend of mine, her kiddo was having some um, some tummy aches and, and pl- some digestive sort of complaints. And they did all of these um, tests to try to find out what was sort of the root of the problem. And the reality was she had what we think of as like a really sensitive interoceptive system. So her ability to know what was going on in her body was like too strong. <laughs> and when she was asked to kind of to, to check in there, it was really, it was really overwhelming. So, you know, be, I am always saying, be gentle with yourself, um, kind of take baby steps. If, if you've been disconnected from your body for a long time, just something as simple as trying to notice, notice what's happening in a certain body part. Notice if you can feel your heart beating, for example, can be a sort of um, gentle jumping off point. And I like the word notice. And <laughs> now that I've been a bit more active on Instagram lately, what I've seen from comments, whether it's on really, really popular pages or anything like that. Um, some comments that I've seen is, oh, these are these don't sound realistic or these are so cheesy and corny. Mm-hmm. And I bet you people who s- 
safe stuff like that are probably people who haven't tried it before and Mm. when you consciously notice and when you consciously ask yourself these reflective questions sometimes it honestly it feels a little stupid or it feels like oh what am I doing this is not gonna work Mm -hmm. and that's because you've never really had the chance to sit down and reflect and ask and notice about yourself. But when yes. you put that into practice, when you do it more, that kind of quote unquote stupidity or feeling embarrassed about it, it goes away because you realize how important it is to listen to yourself and to do these cheesy, corny things <laughs> that are actually things that are healing for you. Yes. I, um, in Resma Menekemp's book, My Grandmother's Hands, which is another one I always recommend, he describes, um, well, he, he uses the term settling practices, sort of ways of settling the stress response in the body. And he, right at the jump, says these, they are deceptively simple. These yes. are things that babies may do. <laughs> these are things that grandmothers may do. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not powerful. And so kind of going into it with an open mind um, is, is a really important thing. The other thing I would say too, and I think this this came up for me when you were talking about Instagram, which is just a really fascinating place, isn't it? It is. There's just a bunch <laughs> of everything. You know, I'll there's see- so, yeah, there's, it's like impossible to sort of sift through sometimes. And, you know, there's not room for nuance and there's not room for context and all these things. But one thing that I, I, I feel curious about is whether or not folks who are kind of prescribing these practices engage in them themselves. Because it's very clear if you, I'm always talking to our students about this, like do not try to teach a client a strategy that you have not tried yourself. Yep. And I think that it's easy to, to find a resource or find an Instagram post or, you know, save a reel or something that has some audio that you can sort of copy or use your own voice. But if you haven't had sort of the, the felt sense of how that lands for you, I think it's a really bad idea <laughs> to take it to other people. I agree. And I was talking to another creator about this where there are some posts that will just have lists of things like, oh, uh, just a bunch of self-care kind of strategies. But And one of them would be go to therapy. And I remember thinking, wow, to tell someone to go to therapy in a post where (laughs) you're talking about anxiety, that just doesn't land well with me because (laughs) – not every first off not everyone is interested in therapy secondly it's not something that you know oh i'm feeling anxious so i'm going to go to therapy today it doesn't really work like that and i think right. it's more reasonable to have tangible things that you could do and it's what we talked about today you know if you've noticed yourself that you're in this very agitated or maybe you have a frustrated state when you're frustrated what are things that you can do to bring your body back down maybe you need to be angry for a little while before you mm-hmm. can come back down but you know yeah and the reverse <laughs> is true too right if you're feeling kind of like numbed out fatigued exhausted probably you know the take a deep breath post isn't going to be for you either nope. because there's no way that that's going to energize your nervous system, right? You might need to do a little bit of movement. You might need to 
I love balance practices. Anything that can sort of throw you off balance a little bit is a really powerful way to energize the nervous system. It's you're right. It's it's the sort of like one size fits all. Um, ah, yes. Prescriptive messages are like, oh my goodness, it's it's a lot. It's it's too much. It's and then it becomes so generalized that it doesn't really become helpful anymore. Is my right. Opinion. Like it's, <laughs> therapy is so easy for everyone to access, right? We're not yeah. having issues with wait lists all over the place. There aren't cultural implications around telling someone to go to therapy. It's like, oh my gosh, come on. Yeah, let's just go. <laughs> <laughs> and you talked about balance exercises. What are some that you can recommend? So I was able to um, do this training with a woman named Jane Clapp a couple of years ago. And the training series was called Movement for Trauma. And that was really the first time that I dug into some of these more movement-based practices and practiced them all myself. So I had that experience before I took them to anyone else. Um, And one of my favorites, which is super simple, is to, if you hold on to something like a rest a book, for example, or something on a flat surface, a clipboard um, on your hand and take a tennis ball or some sort of small ball and place it on the flat surface and try to walk around the room. That's it. Walk around the room. The ball's going to slide off. The ball's going to drop. You're going to save it sometimes. Sometimes you're not going to save it. Another one is to rip off the corner of a piece of paper, hold it in front of you, drop it and try to catch it with your non-dominant hand. That's another one where you, that sort of zap that you get before you fall over when you're trying to balance. Do you know what I mean? Like in your, in your belly, you get sort of like, oh, yeah, that is a really powerful way to kind of energize the nervous system. And then other silly things that, that kids would do, try to throw yourself off balance. Can you stand on one foot and move your arms around? Again, deceptively simple, silly looking stuff that actually is really effective really quickly. I like that a lot because these are things that, again, it sounds silly to do, but mm-hmm. hey, don't hate it unless you've tried it. Exactly. <laughs> and and I, I love that because it takes you away from whatever is maybe bringing you down in that moment. You're distracting yourself physically. You're distracting yourself mentally and you're doing something kind of it's kind of like even washing your face with cold water so you feel refreshed yes. to actually have those physical barriers to take you to somewhere else out of whatever you know bad place you are in right now exactly it's it, you're changing your internal state which changes everything and so I, I, I love balance practices. I love interval practices too. So engaging in a certain repetitive activity, um, maybe that's bouncing from the knees or shaking or dancing or punching the air, if that's something that would be helpful to you for 30 seconds at a time, say, and then 15 seconds of stillness and do those intervals over a few times each. And you really start to it's almost like you're offering your nervous system the encouragement that these stressful experiences can be completed. Do you know what I mean? That you can experience activation in your nervous system and it can settle back down and come to an end. And that's a really powerful thing for folks who've had these, you know, lived experiences of immense trauma or even just, you know, the trauma that is inherent to the pandemic. There'd been 
so much unpredictability for so long that I think many of us were in this sort of heightened state for a long time and many of us still are. And so being able to remind our nervous systems, like, no, we can, like Glennon Doyle says, we can do hard things. We can experience some of that energy in our body that's maybe not super comfortable and it can come to an end and we can come back down to baseline. That's a, that's another strategy that I'm, that is, I, I think is really effective and powerful very, very quickly. I agree with that. It's just, I keep going back to what you said earlier. And I think you just said it so well about keeping it simple And by doing that, it's just noticing, noticing what's going on with your body, what's going on with your mind and listening to what you need at that moment. Yes, exactly. Jenny, we've talked about so many different things today. I'm wondering (laughs) if you have any final comments or if there's one tip, one thing that our listeners can keep in mind when they're wanting to regulate their nervous systems. What's that one thing they could do? Can I say two if I'm quick? (laughs) (laughs) So one thing to just keep in mind, part of this I think comes from the sort of TikTok, Instagram, mental health world. um, And part of it is sort of our, our socialization, our social political climate, white supremacy, the patriarchy, all these things. In many ways, the nervous system is thought of, regulating the nervous system is thought of as having the goal of a person being calm, right? That's not actually what we want. What we want when we are talking about regulating the nervous system, we want a nervous system that responds to the moment appropriately. We want access to the whole range of responses and internal states and to be able to trust that our bodies will, our our nervous systems, our beautiful brains will kind of Mm -hmm. kick into gear whenever is needed. Balance adaptivity, um, flexibility, like these are the words that I would use to describe what we want when we think about a regulated nervous system, not, you know, like you said, stillness, soft voice, all the beige on social media, (laughs) like that's not really what um, a regulated Mm -hmm. nervous system looks like. We want to be able to to engage a fight response. We want to be able to dissociate when we need to. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is to experiment with what are termed glimmers. This is not my word. This comes from um, Deb Dana, who's done a lot of work around polyvagal theory and, and integrating that theory into practice. So we can think of the glimmer as being like the opposite of a trauma trigger. So a trigger to, to a traumatic experience is usually like a, a super teeny tiny sensory experience that is somehow evocative of something that has happened before. They come sort of out of nowhere and they can really, really throw you off. The scent of somebody's cologne might be reminiscent of an abuser or um, the color of a car, the color and make of a car may look like the one that, that you'd had an accident with. They can really throw you off. Glimmers, on the other hand, are these, again, really brief, quick, usually sensory experiences that bring us joy, that bring us laughter, that bring us a sense of groundedness or connection. Um, And they almost always go unnoticed because of everything else that we're dealing with. But anything from like 
the sound of a particular person's laugh might be something that is just going to immediately help you to feel connected and grounded. It might be the smell of a particular candle or a meal that somebody makes. It might be the first bite of one of your favorite things to eat. These, again, deceptively simple, quick, really easy to miss moments that if we're able to, again, notice them, notice how they're affecting us, or even set a goal of noticing five glimmers a day. This is neither body-based. This is not meditative. This is really just kind of helping folks to get into this, this noticing practice in a way that is immediately rewarding. So keep an eye out for glimmers as sort of a step one to figuring out what's going to work best to, to keep you or get you into a regulated state. And for those of you who appreciate a scientific approach from it, maybe if a glimmer doesn't sit with you, you can think of it as what are things that give you a dopamine hit? And what that means is what are things that bring you joy, that give you reward and pleasure? And dopamine is a chemical released in your brain that is in charge of all those feel-good feelings. And, you know, it's when you have a treat or a snack that you like, there's a dopamine release. When you go do something exciting or you have a really nice walk and talk with a friend, you feel happy after that. It's a dopamine hit. So whatever glimmer, dopamine, or things that bring you joy, noticing yourself, try that. It's as simple as that. You don't need to go book a therapy session. You don't need to go <laughs> You're welcome money. to, but yeah, yeah, keep it simple. I mean, I'm not complaining. I would love to talk to as many people as I can, but <laughs> try that. <laughs> so Jenny, where can listeners find you? So I, yeah, I'm out there with all these other mental health creators (laughs) (laughs) on Instagram. Um, My Instagram is at Dr. Jenny King. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, but I'm a lot less active there. Um, My website is drjennyking.com. And there you can find, um, I've created what I call the micro practice framework. And I have two products, uh, an E sort of workbook and a card deck that is full of 28 of these quick and easy, mostly body-based practices to get us into a regulated state fast. So those are available um, through the shop on my website at drjennyking.com. And I'll make sure to include those into the notes. And to support my podcast and help reach others, please follow and share with anyone looking to learn more about mental health. I also have some blog posts on Shervin.ca, as well as my Instagram at Therapy with Shervin, where I upload pretty much every day with mental health content. And I try to make sure I provide tangible tips and tricks for mental health. So check it out. But Jenny, thank you so much for being part of the episode today. Oh, it was great. It was great. Thank you for having me. All right, take care, everyone. Bye.